Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This episode is powered by denmeditation.com. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, your host and the founder of Den Meditation. You guys, we were so lucky. We got Greg Braden and he is here today. I cannot wait for you to listen to this episode. He is fantastic. He is a scientist. He is an author. He's a producer of television. He is an educator. He talks about everything. And I mean, to pick his brain was just so lucky. He's also a five-time New York Times bestselling author. So we really cover the gamut here. If you want to talk about life, where we come from, who are we, is this real life, is this a simulation, um, and also just the divine within us. Most importantly, who are we at our core? What is the potential of our human experience? And this idea that we're not even scratching the surface of what we are capable of. We get into that and more. Um, we talk about the transhuman experience and about cloning. I mean, all of it. This is going to bend your brain in all the right ways. Again, listen to it. Just have your mind open. See what you come back with. He is so incredible. I'm so happy he is part of our community. I hope you enjoy this episode. Do us a favor, subscribe and leave us a review. Um, just get ready, take some notes or just listen, but it is a ride. Okay, so Greg and Tal, take one. Take Here one. We Here we go. We've actually been chatting a ton off off of this recording, which has been so great. And I'm so happy to talk with you. And um, one of the things which I find fascinating, I don't often sit down with the scientists. And so I love this. I talk a lot about the woo-woo stuff and, you know, get very esoteric, which I love. But to talk to you, it's it's going to be incredible. But I do want to ask you, you know, there's something about science and spirituality. There's a fine line between it. However, yet it feels like there's been so much that opposes them throughout history, right? And it feels like those scientists that kind of go for the beyond get labeled a little bit as crazy. And then there's kind of the faction of scientists that are like, we figured it out. These are the facts. Sure. This is science. How how did you enter this world? Did you enter this world already knowing you wanted to explore beyond or was it something once you were within the world that started to get you to ask more questions? Wow. Well, you know, thank you for the question. First, I'm just going to say thank you for inviting me, trusting me to come into your community because this is unscripted, unrehearsed. The truth <laughs> is you have no idea what I'm going to say and you trust me nope. with your community anyway. So thank you. That's the best you, part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, when I was first asked that question, the, the way it typically comes is, Greg, how did you make a quantum leap from what people perceive as a quantum leap from the world of, of science? I, I'm a scientist, a degreed uh, geologist, background, math, physics, computer science. And they say, how did you get from that to the world of spirituality? And I was surprised because to me, I never made the distinction. I just thought they were two different ways 
of, of experiencing the same thing. When I was in the corporations, I was literally approached by management and told that I had to choose. They said, you must huh. choose between uh, the path of science, and the path of spirituality. And it was interesting because I was born and raised in the U.S. in a, a rural community in northern Missouri, right in the middle of this big, beautiful country of ours. We didn't talk about spirituality a lot, but we practiced it uh, the way that we were conditioned. And, and it was always linked to religion. And so when in the corporations, they told me I had to make a choice. I said, you know, what does that choice really mean? And I looked up the definition and what I found is that spirituality is all about relationships. Spirituality is about our relationship first to ourselves, then to one another, then to the earth, yep. then to the cosmos, to God, to a higher power, to the future, to the past. And that is exactly what science is investigating. Science is helping us to understand the deep truth of our relationships to the world and our origin, where we fit in, into the world. So, so my in, intuition that they were the same language actually proved to be pretty right on. Uh, I did leave the corporations in uh, after the end of the Cold War. I was, uh, you know, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was an earth sciences major, a, a geology major, but it was at a time in the 1970s when computers were just becoming popular and not a lot of people were incorporating computers into, uh, into to technology. It was so new. And I had found an affinity for computer science. And so I had a background in earth science and computer science. And, uh, and I was hired without my degree during the first energy crisis of the 1970s to do subsurface mapping of geologic structures uh, on the North Slope, Alaska. It's, it's called Prudhoe Bay. And it, America began drawing their oil from our own resources rather than importing it from the Middle East where, where it was cut off. So... Uh, so it went from that, but the computer science became stronger than the earth science component. And then I was, uh, a whole series of circumstances. I ended up in an aerospace position thinking that I would be building software to explore the cosmos because that's what part of the company did. But it was during the Cold War years and they assigned me to what now is called the Star Wars Defense Initiative, S SDI program. But I learned a lot about people and about war and about fear and the way that people respond to those things. And it was important for me, uh, you and I talked off camera, I'm, I have uh, uh, a genetic lineage of, um, uh, of a lot of fear and hate in, in my DNA from a, uh, a Jewish side of the family and my father was, uh, was Cherokee. And so there's something in me that is always, that war has just been so, I have always believed, Tal, that if we know how to look into the past and we know where to look, that somewhere in our ancient past, we were given the key to awaken something within us that would help us to never, never have the kinds of wars in our lives again that has caused so much hurt and suffering in the past. And so I, I left the corporations believing that I would, I think that's worth a lifetime of dedication. And and I began looking in the indigenous traditions of our ancestors to understand what they knew that maybe we've forgotten or maybe we, we never knew it to begin with. And then how can we practically apply 
those discoveries into our lives today. And, uh, and that is a long answer to a short question of how I made that shift from going to a cubicle working in the defense industry every day to, uh, to this beautiful studio. I'm, I'm just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico right now is where I'm coming to you from. Now, were you always like that as a kid, though? Like as a kid, too, were you always kind of looking back? Were you in history books? Were you, mm. you know, or was that something that just kind of you want, got, you want a, you real, know, a really deep, later? honest, truthful answer? Yes. I would be so, disappointed if it wasn't. Okay. Well, I, I just, uh, <laughs> you said yes, so I'll, I'll share that. I don't talk about it a lot, but I, um, I'm the product of a very dysfunctional, abusive, alcoholic family. My, my father was the alcoholic and the abuser. My mom and my younger brother got got the bad end of, of that. And, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know. We don't know everything we know as adults. So we, we find really innovative ways to survive. And for me, uh, two things. It was music and science. Mm. And I became a musician at a very early age. And, uh, and I engaged in science uh, when I was five years old. And, and my mom really support. She didn't understand it all, but she supported it. You know, she helped me. We memorized the names of all the dinosaurs and the geologic eras and all of the <laughs> kings of Egypt and, you know, the solar system oh and the God. planets and the stars and all that. So I, I always, I, I had an affinity for science and, uh, and I had an affinity for music. And uh, I said, well, am I going to be a scientist or a rock star? I tried the rock star thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still a musician. I'm actually working on, on a CD right now. But I, I said, you know, that will not be my primary contribution to my global family. I, I think we're living this rare, precious moment in the history of our civilization and the history of our species. Time of extremes. We've never seen anything mm -hmm. like this where, where one idea has the potential to really make a difference because of the chaos in the world. Everything is upside down right now. We're living a convergence, a rare convergence of cycles, climate cycles, geologic cycles, economic cycles, conflict cycles, war cycles. War actually occurs in cycles and we're living, they're all converging right now. They're creating an environment where the unsustainable ways of thinking and living are collapsing. And our opportunity now is we either recognize that and let them go. They've served us in the past, but we let them go now and embrace the beautiful new potentials for a world that we know in our heart exists. Now it's, it's up to us to, through our minds to, to bring it in, into to something that's real. Or we cling to the ideas and we cling to the imagery and we cling to the comfort of the familiar of the old ways that worked and got us where we are, but we've outgrown them. But a lot of people don't know that. So, so we're, we're, we're living this time right now. And it is a time where one idea can have the, the, the potential uh, that we didn't see maybe even 10, 15, 20 years ago to really help people to think of themselves differently and to, to find new ways to solve our problems. It is so interesting because we, I agree, you can feel that we're in this time of life where it's all like pressurized and... And I agree. It's like we're at this interesting time where, you know, people feel like they're more open and the idea like, look, that you have this conversation, you have a media day. The fact that people are <laughs> seeking out this from you as often as they are shows you that we're in a different time of life, that people want to hear it. They want to le learn it. They're craving it. Yet simultaneously, 
it's fascinating when you look at what's happening in the world, whether it's Ukraine that keeps, you know, Ukraine and Russia pushing, trying to get a World War III, whether it's, you know, the threat of a civil war on our own country, whether it's the Middle East, and I mean, so many others, we could go on forever, yeah. like we were talking about earlier. Is it that, and even on the smaller scale, which isn't so small, but like in our educational systems, trying to even go back to old history that we've already proven is beyond, but now sure. losing that, I mean, it's just, it doesn't even feel like we're at this precipice. Sometimes it feels like they're pulling us backwards. There, there's a battle unfolding yeah. in our lives and it's no secret to any of our, your community is a very well-informed community and your community is, is my global family. So I'm just going to say hello to my global family and your community. <laughs> there's a battle. But the battle is playing on multiple levels. There's a battle for our thoughts. That's no secret. And the, the narratives that are being imposed upon us through the sources that we used to trust, through our mainstream, what we call legacy media, uh, now through you know, all the social media that's out there, uh, it's, it's very, very obvious that, that we are being uh, inundated with information that leads us to think in a certain way so that we will make the choices that benefit other people rather than the choices being imposed upon us. They tried that and it doesn't work. So rather oh. than imposing the choices, they, we are being masterfully conditioned. And I got to tell you, the, the marketing, I'm impressed. Uh, I mean, I know what's happening and I'm still impressed with the really sexy <laughs> marketing, the slick marketing, you know, for technology and things. Things like that. So on one level, there's a battle for our thoughts. There's a deeper battle for our beliefs. What do we believe about ourselves? What is the origin of our universe? Where do we come from? Are we the product of lucky biology or is there uh, a divinity and an intelligence underlying our existence? And if so, what does that mean? But there's an even deeper battle. And this is the one that I'm most passionate about. And it's no longer a secret. It's becoming more mainstream. There's a battle for our very humanness. Our very hmm. humanness is on the line. We are being taught and our, our children are being taught in school. And they have for a couple of, of generations now, it's just becoming more pronounced, that we are flawed as a species, that carbon-based life in general and humans specifically are, are flawed as a species, uh, that we are powerless victims of an environment we have no control over and because of that, we need a savior and our savior right. is being touted as technology. And when I say flawed, the flaws that are being listed uh, in, and these are, I mean, this is scientific journals. This is being taught to our kids in, in school. Uh, our ability to have emotions is viewed as a flaw. Our, our ability to, for empathy, for sympathy, for compassion, is viewed as a flaw because it clouds logic and judgment and our ability to make good decisions. I mean, it sounds like a stuff from Star Trek, you know, back, back in the yeah. 70s in, in the Spock world. So, so now what's happening is there is a movement where young people are being taught that they don't have value because they're the product of random mutations, you know, accidental biology, and, and they are, are flawed. But that's okay because they can replace the systems, they can replace the cells in their bodies and the blood in their veins with chemicals and with computer chips and artificial intelligence. It's called the transhuman movement. Mm -hmm. Here's the deal. What is not being acknowledged 
and, and science knows this. There, in evolutionary biology, there's a term that's called use it or lose it. And we've all heard that before. Sometimes we joke about it. When people get older and there are uh, in activities they may not engage in as much as they did when they were younger, you hear people joke, say, ah, oh, yeah, you know, why? You lose it or lose it. Yeah. <laughs> you use it or lose it. So, but here's the thing. That applies to biology. When our bodies sense that their natural abilities are no longer needed, they will stop producing the neurons in the brain, for example, or the immune system. If, if something else is creating the immune response for us, our body's very intelligent says, ah, you know, I, maybe you don't need me anymore. So, so our natural abilities, the things that make us human begin to atrophy in one generation. Next generation, those abilities become appendages of the past and we begin to lose the very the very cherished abilities that define us as humans. This is how you lose a species. And we're on the line. Our species is on the line right now. This can't go on for 10 years. This is being pushed right now. And it's being pushed through agendas like uh, that have very, very deceptive names, like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. Who doesn't want those? Sustainable Development Goals. Sure, bring it on. Beautiful goals, 17 goals uh, of, of how to create a better world. When you read the fine print, however, Tal, when you read that fine print, the way to achieve those goals is horrendous. And I, I have worked with uh, a committee that was actually working with those, trying to push back on, on the, some of those implementations but that committee was hijacked. So what, were, what, what are some of them? Like what, no, I'll, just, what I'll, I'll give you an example. So food security, who doesn't want food security? Of course. Um, yeah, sure. Everybody wants that. Well, the way to achieve that food security right now, what, what's happening is because of climate change, which is a fact that it is happening, regardless of why you think it's happening. I, I see it in my communities here in rural Northern New Mexico. Now there's I mean, a reluctance. It's snowing in California. <laughs> well, yeah, Los Angeles is snow, snow alerts. It's snowing and in Los Angeles right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. So, so what's happening is the farmers are not being given the subsidies to help them through the difficult times. So they're losing their farms. Those farms are being bought up by corporations, and now they're becoming corporate farms uh, that are being run using a lot of the stuff that we don't want genetically modified, genetically engineered seeds that have direct implications in the human body. We know that from the studies. Yep. Um, genetically modified insects that are, are involved in these or, or global health. Who doesn't want global health? Sure, we all want global right. health. Now you read <laughs> the fine print for global health and they are talking about mandatory programs using technologies, in my opinion, and many of my scientific colleagues are saying, uh, have not yet been tested and proven to the degree that they should be, in our opinion, before um, before they can be used on, on that scale. So, yeah, we all want global health, but not a word, not a word about personal responsibility, about maybe some changes in nutrition, maybe some changes in exercise, maybe a little less stress, and maybe teaching people how to to remedy the stress in their lives and how to think about themselves different. It's all disempowered based in disempowered information. Yes. We need something else. So this is the battle. Now, if it's a battle, I, I don't want to leave people hanging. There's a way to win this <laughs> battle without fighting. And all we okay. have to do, all we have to do is become the best version of ourselves. 
The human body is so extraordinary. We are a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated, soft technology, not computer chip, hard technology, computer chips and AI and wires. We are neurons and cell membranes and ion potentials moving across cell walls. But here's the thing. We are the only form of life that we know of today with the ability to self-regulate all of that. And right. our own biology at will, on demand, when we choose. And what that means, we're conditioned to wait for the world out there to give us the reason to feel differently or to give us the reason mm. to awaken these things. We are designed with the ability to self-regulate. And when we do that, we, we on demand, stronger immune system, on demand, uh, longevity enzymes are awakened on demand, higher heart rate variability, which means greater resilience to change in your life on demand, super learning, super cognition, super memory, and so much more. But we don't teach our kids this stuff. It is really, it's fascinating because I have a child and I feel like that's the thing. The first thing I say with mm -hmm. her, because, you know, she's seven. So she's at that age of like, mommy, congratulations. You did this. Congra I have no Thank children. You. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It, but it's like you did that. You know, it's always the blame. And that's yeah. my big thing with her. Like, no, 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 no. Like, I don't care what happens. You have to start looking how you can solve these things yourself, how you can do it. You can't blame everyone for every mood you're having or everything that's wrong. And yes, that's on a tiny scale with my child who's seven, but I see it in the yeah. generations. I agree. And it's what I teach. I, it's reteaching people. We don't have to be the victims because there is this idea that everything that's upsetting you or sad and can be fixed by either something externally and also happened to you because of something externally. So everything's not about you anymore at all. But it goes it's, even deeper. It's, it's true. It's true. But it goes even, even deeper because everything I'm talking about, our, our humanness is based upon our genome, our DNA. Mm -hmm. And the DNA is so poorly understood. We understand the nuts and bolts of how it comes together. But the function of, of what our DNA allows us to do that no other form of life can do and one of those things is it allows access. It's through DNA that we actually communicate with the world around us. You can think of, of genes as little uh, vibratory antenna, high frequency antenna. They're receiving information constantly from the, world, the field around us, from the light that comes to us, natural light, and translating that information and I'm going to use a word that it is controversial in some circles, and then I'm going to define the word to make it less controversial. The word is, <laughs> is well, the word is divinity. I love that because, word. Yeah, because what's happening is it's only through our DNA that we have access to our divinity. And divinity is defined. If you go to the Webster's Dictionary, it has nothing to do with religion, nope. although I can see where it's linked to religion. But the, this is really interesting, a really interesting definition. Divinity is our ability to transcend the perceived limits uh, of uh, the perceived limits of humanity. So whatever we think our limitations are, doesn't mean they're real, but our perceived limits, our divinity is the ability to transcend, to become more than those perceived limitations. That can only happen with natural biology. And now the movement out there wants to replace our natural biology with synthetics, with polymers, with computer chips, with artificial intelligence. And here's what a lot of people don't understand. 
I'm, and I love technology. I, I, I'm, That's what you do. I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not slamming it at all. But here's the thing. Is AI fast? Absolutely. Are computer chips fast? Absolutely. But, but they are limited by the physics of the stuff they're made of. So they're mm -hmm. limited by the silicon, for example. They can only go so fast and, and they can only function based upon the CPU of the system, the, the central processing unit of the system. Here's the thing. Human neurons scale and we don't know the upper limits of our scalability. So we have a scaling potential of neurons. We have a scaling potential of cells that is so much more advanced than those crappy little computer chips that they're trying to replace us with. It's so interesting because I, I teach Kundalini too, and that's one of the things I use as an example to explain what it is. And I say, you know, like a computer, you know, if it's outdated, it stops working, it slows down. And so it's the yeah. same thing with our nervous system. We're constantly upgrading it so we can handle more that comes in. But I love this link of how you just said it. I'm inherently agreeing in the sense of the computer you have to throw out and buy a new one that's recreated around the physics of what it is. The body can just keep upgrading itself. I, you don't have to throw this body out. You're just internally going in to upgrade uh, it. That's, exactly. It's fascinating here's, here's, when you look at it that way. It's a perfect, and by the way, we're on, what is our, we're on Riverside. There's a little bit of a delay. I just spoke over you twice because there's a delay and oh I apologize God. for that. So I'm just, I'm just acknowledging um, that. We're Jewish. If we weren't speaking over each yeah. other, I'd be very upset. <laughs> but it's, it's not, it's not my intent. But here, I'm just going to give you an example. When I, when I was in school back in the 1950s, 1960s, I was taught that the human brain can only process information up to 40 cycles per second, 40 hertz. And all the textbooks showed it, you know, that was the upper limit. And then they started testing Tibetans during meditation. And the Tibetans said, well, if we do a certain kind of meditation, we can exceed that. So they, they went to Stanford University or UCLA and they put them into the MRIs and they said, if you can imagine a Tibetan monk in all of his robes laying in an MRI and they say, okay, meditate, you know, <laughs> and they do it. And all of a and sudden they're processing. They're, they're doubling that. They're, now they're processing information 80 cycles per second, 80 hertz. And the scientists said, okay, well, maybe we were off a little bit. We'll upgrade. But, but the human brain can't possibly do any more than this. And the Tibetans said, well, you know, there's another kind of meditation. And then they were able to, to, to bump it up to 100 cycles per second, 100 hertz. And the scientists said, well, we can't possibly do more than that. And you know where this is going. They went to 100, 120, 130, 150, 180. We're now over 200 cycles wow. per second. And we had to create new new brain states, new words called gamma and hypergamma to define what it was that was happening in the brains. And we haven't maxed out yet. We do not know the upper limits of what it means to be human. And this is the slippery slope. In one generation, we could lose those potentials if we give ourselves away to the technology. And my work, I'm not saying don't do it. I would like to let people know that I believe we owe it to ourselves as a species to find out who we are before we give it away. Let's just find out what it is that we're giving away before we lose it forever. And my sense is that once we do that, we will feel less of an urgency and less of a need to embrace all of this external technology, all of the meta, all of the Neuralink, all the things that are being developed because we realize that we are the technology. And, and that is the beauty. And that's how we win the battle. We win the battle by becoming the best version of ourselves. And I agree with this wholeheartedly. So I don't want you to take the, I don't want you to take this next question as not agreeing no, with it, but it's no. a curious question is 
how do you reconcile that? And I'm sure there's a very easy answer with, you know, in human design, it's that amazing idea of, you know, humans backstory is not evolution. Like we're not actually evolution area. It's right. some, something came in, changed the hormones for us because that's just not a natural process. I can never, I mean the DNA, cause it's not an actual process that could be found. So right. how do you reconcile that of something intervened there as well? I don't think it has to be reconciled. I think they're both saying the same thing. I think the, and I, uh, I am not proficient in the human design system. Uh, the, the trademark system that, that I believe you're referring to. I have friends that were in the early stages of that back in the 1990s. I understood it then. I have not followed uh, to the degree. Certainly, I, I know uh, from what I've seen from your videos and your podcast, you are an expert on these things. <laughs> but what I believe what the human design system is telling us, uh, it is showing us the results of the intervention that is responsible for our origin. So here's, so as a geologist, I just want to be really clear on this. I'm mm -hmm. a degree geologist and I believe in evolution. It's a fact in the fossil record for some forms of life. You can't deny it for some animals, some plants, some insects. Darwin's theory of evolution breaks down when it comes to humans and it breaks down in a really big way. And here's how we know, because we now have the science, we have the technology that allows us to extract DNA from the fossilized remains of the forms of life that we used to believe were our ancestors that we descended from. So we can now build a genome from a Neanderthal, for example. We can do that. And now we, we compare their genome to our genome. And what we see is there's not enough overlap. We did not descend from Neanderthal. And, and now the science, scientific papers the real science, they're telling us, not only did we not descend from them, we shared the earth with them. We probably had Neanderthal boyfriends and girlfriends. We probably interbred. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why some people still have Neanderthal DNA. If you go, you know, 23andMe or, you know, one of the, the genome um, services, they'll say, oh, yeah, you have some Neanderthal DNA. I, I was doing a live program not long ago, and I said we probably had Neanderthal boyfriends and girlfriends. And the woman on the front row she raised her hand. Do. She goes, I, I still do. <laughs> yes. and, and, and the guy next to her wasn't laughing at all. And I got to see this whole <laughs> workshop, you know, right in front of my eyes. But, That's so funny. So, so we know, we know what we are not. We are not the product of a long, slow evolutionary process. Here's what else we know. And this is the mind blower is that we appeared about 200,000 years ago and scientists are in complete agreement of, of the date. 200,000 BP before present, the first anatomically modern humans show up on earth. They're in agreement with that. What they're not in agreement with is how it happened and the way it happened. And what right. the, the DNA is showing us is that there were mysterious genetic mutations, number one, and a really powerful fusion of, of two preexisting chromosomes that give us our present day chromosome number two, which is responsible for 80% of our neocortex and our humanness of empathy, sympathy, compassion, self-regulation. And chromosome seven, there was 175 million years. It was a stable chromosome in all primates. And all of a sudden there was a little switch of two genetic letters that linked 
our brain to our tongue to our mouth that gave us the ability for complex speech. And this is why a chimpanzee will never sing Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven, even though they share, yeah, they share 98% <laughs> of our DNA. But all of these things happened at the same time. They happened when we appeared 200,000 years ago. That's not Darwin's idea of evolution. No. And I think that supports what you're seeing in human design. You're seeing the outcome of those events. So I don't think they're, in my view, and so when you look at this, so when you look at, okay, so something, do we know what that is? And we can talk about that intervenes, sure. fuses these chromosomes. And then when you look at, let's say cloning or AI, which is kind of intervening in your mind, those can be two separate things. You mean cloning and AI? Well, just meaning like transhu some transhuman oh. ideas can be, you know, intervening to take over a certain biological function well, I, or I think way we the, act. First of all, the cloning is not successful. And and the reason it's not successful, what they're finding, if you remember Dolly, the, the first yeah, sheep. Yeah, talk or, about this. Or, or the bovine, the, the, I mean, to this day, the mystery, what scientists are saying, and that this will support uh, part of what we talked about just a few moments ago, they're saying, uh, okay, so here's what they find. At first, the clone looks successful. Everything looks good. Dolly was able to produce, I believe, six offspring early in, in her life. All of a sudden, she began to break down and she died, uh, I think, from respiratory failure at half of hmm. her species' uh, typical age. And they said, well, maybe this is an anomaly. It's now they're doing it with uh, trying bovine cloning and it's the same. They, they live about half the lifespan and they say, well, how can that be? Because it's exactly the same DNA. Well, here's what they're missing. DNA, it's not enough to have the nuts and bolts because those nuts and bolts mm. provide other functions. So if you go back, the DNA is an antenna. It has to tune to what Rupert Sheldrake, uh, the biologist called the morphogenetic field. The DNA has to tune to that. When you're cloning, there's a mismatch. They're replacing the DNA inside the nucleus of the cell. They're not replacing the DNA. It's called the mitochondrial DNA outside of the nucleus. So now that cell has DNA inside the nucleus from another life that is not communicating with the mitochondrial DNA, but they don't understand that because they don't get that the DNA is actually a, a very sensitive uh, it is, is receiving photons of information and light and, inf and energy. So, so yeah, I don't think, but that also goes back to divinity. It's it, like, well, it's, this, it's exactly. missing the this divine. Is, this is the point our, and you asked me this question. We are a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated, soft technology. We are the product of an intervention as a scientist. I have to say there's been an intervention because the, the chromosomes were fused and the genes, after the fusion, genes were added, genes were taken away, and, and there was a process called gene silencing that happened that we cannot account for through evolutionary biology. It all happened all, all at the same time. So we know Amazing. we're not the product of, of an evolutionary process. So when, when modern day scientists are cloning or they're using CRISPR gene editing, or you know they're trying to you know, put chips into the body. In my opinion, they're messing with something that in its perfection is poorly understood. They don't understand the perfection. They understand a little piece and they say, okay, it's like kids with a new toy. They say, okay, 
if we take these genes out, look what we can do. They're not looking at now, what is the implication of that for the system? It's so funny. And this is such a random offshoot. And then we'll get to the more interesting stuff. I follow this guy on Instagram who's obsessed <laughs> with snakes. And part of the reason I followed him was because I used to be very terrified of them. And I thought just, you know, the more I looked at it, it would help. And it has helped. But then once I got over my big fear, he's obsessed and he, of you know, blending different breeds together and different ones and creating these other snakes. And one day I just had this feeling of like, is this okay? Like, it was just this feeling of like, yeah, cool. These are beautiful products that of your creation. And I love, look, I'm all for imagination and higher consciousness. But then it felt like, I don't know. I don't know. There was something that made me very nervous about it. In, in my opinion, there are things that we shouldn't mess with. And, yes. and, and, it's, and it's because we don't understand who we are. But so I, can I, I'm just going to take this to a little bit, if for your permission, can I go, this is unscripted. We had no yes. idea we we're going to talk. Can go, I, go. Can I go off script I mean, Don't a go bit away. Now? Go deeper. Go do whatever you want to do. <laughs> well, so my computer science background during the Cold War years, my, my job was a, a form of software. It's called pattern recognition, pattern recognition software. And it was interesting because about the time that that software was coming about and I was involved in, in that development uh, is when the first time the human genome became publicly available on databases where you could actually, if you knew, if you knew where to go, it wasn't easy, but you could actually download the whole genome. And, um, and it was obvious that there were clear patterns in the genome, meaningful patterns of information. And so I, I began a search in my, at nights on weekends in my spare time, uh, looking for meaning in, in that pattern. And it was a, about a 20-year journey that led wow. to a book that was released, my book in 2004, called The God Code. And, and the bottom line is that there is, uh, when we use the mathematic link that exists between ancient alphabets and the periodic table of elements. So, so every ancient, there, there are what are called core or root alphabets. Uh, biblical Hebrew is a root alphabet. Cuneiform is a root alphabet. Sanskrit is a root alphabet and Arabic. Those are four existing root alphabets. Every one of those alphabets has always had a mysterious number linked to the letters that are precise. They never change. They've always existed. Nobody knows exactly where they came from. And biblical Hebrew uses them interchangeably a lot. You see this a lot between the, they use the numbers and the mm -hmm. letters. If you read the Torah, for example, often you will see, um, uh, instead of the, the name of the chapter, you'll see it in, in numbers or, or vice versa. And, yep. and the other, other traditions do as well. So with that knowledge, I began looking for the common link between the periodic table of elements and the DNA in the human body, uh, and, ancient alphabets. And to make a long story really brief, uh, and if people want to see more, I've got videos on it and certainly in the book. We now know uh, the mathematic link between the letters of the ancient alphabets, the core root alphabets, and the elements of the DNA is carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon. And, and the link, the mathematic link is what's called atomic mass. The atomic mass number of our DNA is the number that links to those ancient alphabets. What that means wow. is that you can take the genome and you can replace all of the elements with the letters that they represent. And when you do that, you have meaningful information. And wow. the very first, like any book 
before you get to the, the main part of that book, there's an introduction. And I, the, the book, The God Code, 2004, New York Times bestseller, it, it is describing the introduction uh, into every, every strand of DNA in our bodies. And that introduction is a very brief statement that literally, this isn't my interpretation, it literally reads the words, God eternal within the body. God eternal within the body. And it within reads those body. words. It reads those in Hebrew. It reads them in Arabic. It reads in cuneiform. It reads in Sanskrit and probably others. But those are the four of the, of the six root alphabets. And what it tells us, and when I published this, I caught a lot of flack from some rabbis who said, you know, we're not supposed to tell people this. And I also got support from some rabbis, uh, Zalman Schechter, for example, really supported and said, you know, it's been hidden for a long time. And if we're ever going to, to understand this, now is a really good time. But why wouldn't we want to know that within the 50 trillion cells of our body is a message that tells us who we are. We are God eternal within the body. Now, who is that God? What does that mean? All I did, I literally followed the instructions in the 3,000-year-old text to be able to find this mathematic link. And since this time, now this is really interesting, since this time, beginning in 07, the Japanese recognized, Japanese scientists recognized that data can be stored in DNA more efficiently than it can be stored on the hard drive of a computer or a flash drive. Amazing. So they, they proved it. They began taking data and they put it in the DNA of bacteria that would multiply quickly so they could say, okay, after 60 generations, which would take maybe only a few hours, is the data that we put in 60 generations ago still intact? And they pulled it out and uh, the first message, it was a very brief message, they put in E equals MC square in 1905 is the year that Einstein published. 60 generations later, it was still there that proved the point. Now what they have done is they have stored the entire library of Congress of the United States in the DNA of bacteria that are resilient to radiation. So if we ever have a really bad war, wow. the, the, the generation that survives will have all of that information in, in the bacteria that can be reconstituted into data. So did that so, happen to us? This is the question. Did that happen to yes, us 200,000 years ago? My that's yeah. literally my question to okay, you, so which that's is it. why is everything, because I love that stuff and the codes and then the Torah codes. And I mean, I love it. And we, you and I need to get together again because that's a whole nother <laughs> conversation. But why is it all so hidden? So like intervened, like there's an intervention, 200, that, like everything switches, yeah. the chromosomes fuse. There's these codes. And I'm sure there's more codes we haven't even uncovered yeah. yet that yeah. give us even more like in music in probably everything probably in what you and i are doing right now there's probably codes shooting out that we're not even aware of um wh why and by the way the fact that you say as you talked about the dna storing all of that like my whole body just started shaking because i teach that all the time i'm like the wisdom mm. if you could just turn your cells on it, it would be amazing what we'd yeah. be capable of um, so you actually give it some actual weight by, with, with what you say versus me just being woo-woo. Um, so I love it. So, But why is it so hidden? What is the secrecy? What is it about us having to find? And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to babble for a second, but I, maybe you can connect it because what keeps popping in my head when we talk about this divinity 
is, you know, this idea of how divinity, you said it's kind of been co-opted with religion, which we understand why. And religion is kind of what, in some, and I'm not anti-religion as long as it's used properly. So I don't want people to think I'm going crazy on the religions, but it has really co-opted also this idea of divinity is outside, right? Yep. It's, it's the savior thing we were talking yeah. about, looking for savior, keeping us as these disempowered people. So it feels like all of this is somehow connected, the hiddenness, the codes, this whole other idea shed some light, sir. <laughs> well, you know, there are layers and layers, depends on how deep we want to go. Uh, I mean, the bottom line, you've heard the term knowledge is power. Yeah. So when we lack of knowledge is lack of power. So if we don't know who we are, we are vulnerable to other people's ideas uh, and other people's agendas. Uh, because we don't know that we have the power to create our own strong immune systems, for example, which is what the, all the New England Journal just came out last week and is talking about how, how exceedingly powerful natural immunity is compared to induced immunity. I mean, they're, they're saying that now, but that, those articles, those scientific journals, you're never going to see those on CNN um, because they're, that's, that's not their, their agenda. So the, the, the more powerless we feel, the, uh, the more vulnerable we are to other people's ideas of, uh, and other people's agendas for what they want the world and what they want our lives to look like. And I think it's been true for thousands of years. The church intervened, and I, I, think, I think the church and I think religion, it's, they're layers, of what they do. And I, I believe in my rural community here in Northern New Mexico, I see firsthand that religion and different religions play a powerful role in totally uh, agree. bonding, bonding society. So they bring people together on the weekends or in the weekdays. And they, when somebody is suffering or a, a house burns, we had fires here, we've had snow and floods. The, the religious or, organ, religious organizations can, can really be a powerful social bonding Community. mechanism. Yes. What the flip side of that is that the church intervened and said, you mere flawed human don't have the power to access your own divinity. You need us to do it for you. And people began to believe that. And that mm -hmm. I believe is a disservice that has separated us. And the other thing, and I'm seeing this really big time now, I have friends I think they're still my friends, but I'm not sure who during, <laughs> during COVID COVID meant a lot of things, to a lot of different people. And they became, uh, they turned to religion and to literal interpretations of religion. And what they, what the, one of the outcomes is they began to judge anyone that did not see those religious texts the way that they see them or did does not live their lives. So if a religion separates us, from God, if a religion makes us feel powerless in our own bodies and as victims, and if a religion turns us against our brothers and sisters because they believe differently, we have to ask ourselves, is that a healthy thing? And, and, and does that serve us? And if it doesn't, who does it serve? And we owe it to ourselves to ask those questions honestly, just honestly. Don't have to get mad about it, but just ask, you know, who, who does it serve? And, and whatever the answer for that question is, to you or me, or when we ask, then we, we live our lives accordingly in kindness. I think this is really important. Yes. 
is I think we're all learning that the world is changing. We're making new choices. And when we discover something in our lives, I think it's possible to share it with kindness, not trying to make somebody wrong. You don't have to make somebody wrong and you don't have to embarrass somebody, but I think it, it is possible. And, and I'm a student of this. I'm still learning, but really communicating in ways when we want to share information, we have to ask, what is our intent? What is my intent in yes. sharing this? Am I, am I trying to be better than someone else or one up or can I share this in a way that is less hurtful or creates less suffering? And, and I think all of those kinds of questions help us to become the best version of ourselves and, and better people. Yeah. It's yeah. like, can you share something without being attached to what the outcome is in your mind? Yeah. You know, and I, I agree with that. Let's tap into, cause I know you're, you're um, tight for time, but I feel like it fits in this kind of idea. Cause I keep asking you like, so if there was this, you know, intervention 200,000 years mm. ago, what is all of this? You know, why, what, it, what is the point? Why was there? Why, why were we, you know, and I know you're giggling cause I know it's a much bigger conversation, oh, but wow. it, is a fast, it is a fascinating one that I feel like if we don't give it a little bit of time where it's an injustice. So I heard there were two questions there. What is all this Pick and why? Pick whichever one you want. <laughs> yes. Well, we're still, um, we're still struggling you know, as, as a species to come to terms with who we are, you know, we, we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about where we came from. And here's the thing, the, the science has been hijacked by politicians, by religion, by academia, by corporations. The data has been cherry picked. We ask science to tell us who we are and where we come from. Science has done a really good job and the answers are out there. Uh, the problem is there's a reluctance in the scientific community to accept what has been revealed. So there is part of the battle is a struggle to, to stay with what's called the standard model. The standard model is the standard model of the cosmos. Uh, we're taught that we're the product of a dead universe, this primal explosion, this inert material, uh, lucky physics, where, you know, we're on just the right planet of just the right size, orbiting just the right distance from just the right temperature of the sun and the moon. There's so many anomalies in the moon. We know that it's not a natural, it's not a natural moon. And I think that data is, is pretty well, we could have another conversation about that, but the astronauts, they found that during the Apollo missions, one of the reasons we haven't gone back. Uh, it's more than lucky physics. And then we're told that we're the product of random mutations, lucky biology, just the right, you know, everything happened to, to bring us to who we are. And there is, even though the evidence no longer supports that, there is um, there is a a battle to hang on to that story, and that's what we're teaching our kids: false science uh, based upon obsolete data, and we're asking them to solve the problems that we're leaving in the world with the same thinking that led to the problems because we were taught the same things as as well. So when, uh. when it comes to, I mean, the, I don't know how far you want to go and, and how deep you want to go with this. I'll, I'll say, because there are, are many layers, there is a, a new branch of science that is emerging, uh, asking the forbidden question. And there are entire degree programs and big conferences that are now emerging to explore this question. And the question is, are we living in what is called a base reality uh, or are we living in a virtual or a simulated reality and that is being projected from somewhere else? 
at first it sounds kind of silly. People say, well, of course this is real. And as a scientist, when I began to explore this 20 years ago, I asked myself, if we're not, if we're living in a simulation, how would we know if this is all we've ever known? How would you ever know that this isn't real? Then you look it's at like the, the physics. Show. Yep. Then you look at the physics. There's not much of us here. Every atom, the average human has about 50 trillion cells in the body. Those cells are made out of about approximately 100 trillion atoms per cell. But each of that atom is pretty much empty space. 99.20 plus decimal points of empty space. So we huh. appear solid and physical because of some of the physics, but, but we're really not. There's not much of us here. In 2001, a scientist named Nick Bostrom devised the first complex computer algorithm to ask this question. And it was, it was really interesting. He put a lot of variables together about the world and life and babies and love and, I mean, everything, all these hundreds of variables into this. And the, the algorithm came back and said the odds are far better that we are living in a simulation than that this is a base reality. But then you go to every religion and they say the same things. The Christian tradition says, we're not from here. We're here for a while to learn something and we're going to go somewhere else. This isn't, this isn't where the action is right now. We're, we're learning things here that we're going to need in another world. Hindu traditions call this the Maya, the illusion. Mm -hmm. And they say, we're only here for a while. We're learning something and we're going to wake up. Uh, but the problem is not to get lost in the illusion. This is the Maya traditions. Don't get lost in the sexuality. Don't get lost in the physicality. Uh, Native American traditions all tell us the same. I mean, every indigenous tradition, not one that I'm aware of, and I have not studied every indigenous tradition, every indigenous tradition I've ever studied or I've shared time with the people, not one of them tells us we're the product of a long, slow, gradual process of evolution. They all say that we are part of a greater cosmic community and that we share a common origin and that there was something here before our universe began, uh, which is precisely what would happen in a simulation. Uh, there's a, a TV program called Gaia TV, and I did an entire series. I think it's Gaia TV, a program called Missing Links, uh, season two. So good where I think 13 episodes where we explored the science of whether or not we are in a base reality. So if you begin from that place that we are actually probably somewhere else projecting into this reality, learning something for a period of time, then that becomes a context for everything that we're all of the, all the love, all the hate. And, and you look at the themes that, I mean, they're going to play out in a million ways, but what are the general themes that are playing out. And you look at the films that consciousness has created to tell us about ourselves, like the matrix, yep. which was, it was Hollywood science fiction, but, but the bottom line, the matrix is there's a world we cannot see that influences a world we can see. And we live in both worlds. And that was what that was all. And people loved it all over the world. And then you look at avatar that said, we have a deep relationship. The, the first avatar, I haven't seen the new one yet. We have this deep relationship. I love with, it. Yeah, with, with the natural world. Then you look at the movies that our young people are drawn to of all the superpowers, Wonder Woman, the Avengers, all saying that there's more to us than we've been led to believe and that we have latent abilities. Uh, and I'm not saying any of those are science, but they are phenomenon within 
this experience that we can't discount. So when you bring all that together, what are we learning? The themes, the themes that are playing out right now are, are themes of light and dark, love and hate, war and peace. Maybe, who knows, maybe we are an advanced civilization. I mean, think about this. Well, let me ask, if we go over the top of the hour, a couple of minutes, do you have time or do we need a hard I stop? I do, as long as you can do it. No, I'm, I, I, I told the next five I, hours if you no, have I, I told I told the next <laughs> interview, I, I had a soft, a soft start for them. So they're okay with that. Okay, great. So, so when you look at the, I mean, the themes that are playing out and, and how they play out in our, our lives, uh, not the specifics, because, you know, there's a million ways. And you say, why, why would there be a simulation? You know, who, who would ever create something like that? Well, the, the question really becomes, who benefits from a simulation? You know, okay. if, if you're a pilot in a cockpit simulation learning to fly a Boeing 787 in crosswinds, who benefits from that? Well, you do. And if you're Elon Musk's astronauts, you know, in SpaceX, and you're learning to dock in a simulator, who's going to benefit from that? Not the guy down the street, but the guy having the experience. So I think the answer is who benefits from us being in a simulation? It's us. We benefit. And maybe, maybe we are the product of an advanced civilization that has run into a problem. And this is exactly where the scientific community is going with this. And maybe the problem is a problem of, of war and how we solve our problems. Can we learn to do it without war? Maybe we are on a planet where a sun is going to go supernova and we're learning new ways to live. Or maybe we're on a planet where we have decimated our ecology and we're, we're exploring in a simulation. Can a civilization be built in a way that doesn't destroy the earth that supports all life? You know, all those are, are possibilities or more. But the interesting thing, we've only had computers about 70 years now, 60 to 70 years. I know. And we can build simulations that you cannot tell from reality. What would it mean to a civilization that's been around for 10,000 years or 5,000 years? They've had computers that long. How do we know? And, and so people say to me when we talk about this in our live events, they say, well, if we're somewhere else projecting here, does that mean we're incapacitated in that world for 100 years while we live 100 years here? Absolutely not. A hundred years here could be 20 minutes right. out there in a, in a simulation. So, so where the scientific community is on, it's really interesting. All the external technology that we build, as sophisticated as it is, we've never built anything out there that doesn't mimic what we already do in the cells of our bodies, except right. we do it better. We store information just the way it's stored on the computer chip, our cells work the way the internet works. We transfer photons just the way lasers are transferring. I mean, we are the technology or another way of saying that is our technological world mimics what we have already developed, except we do it better because that is known. Does that principle carry over into our reality? If we are, now building simulated realities and games that you cannot tell from the real world, is that telling us, reflecting what we've already done in our lives? And it's, it's, a, big, it's a big question, but you asked the big question. So, well, so I know, and I could keep going. It's crazy. Yeah, well, Go if, ahead. If, if, we're, if, if, if a simulation is the umbrella under which all of these things are happening, 
then it, it first of all, it answers a lot of questions yes. about who is God and where is heaven and what happens to our loved ones. Will we ever see them again? And, and one of the interesting things in simulation is whoever's in the simulation always has a way to communicate outside the simulation for help. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you get stuck in that cockpit of that 787 and you say, you know, hey, guys, uh, I've never seen this light. What does it mean? And we're, we have been taught through our indigenous traditions that when we access the neural network of the human heart, 40,000 cells that were discovered in 1991, we access that neural network. The peer-reviewed papers actually say, I didn't know we were going to do this, so I don't have the quote, but they actually say the human heart uh, has access to a field of information that is not limited by the laws of physics as we know them today. So we have access to information that's not bound by space and time. That's us communicating our higher self or our ancestors or our guides or our angels or whoever it is that you're talking about. So, so there are a lot of parallels between modern simulations and what our ancestors say to us about our existence, which isn't science, but now you look at what the science is showing us about quantum reality and the origin of the universe. We now know the universe is not dead, inert material. It is alive, it's conscious, and it's intelligent. We can actually, the James Webb telescope is showing us galaxies that create intentional jets that propel them out of the line of fire from incoming radiation that could harm or destroy. Wow. And they saw it once and they said, well, maybe it's a fluke on the Hubble Space Telescope. And then they went back with James Webb and it's, it's happening a lot. And so now they're saying this is a, a conscious act by this galaxy. How can that be? We're beginning to, to see our relationship to the cosmos very, very differently and our relationship to ourselves. We're not the product of Darwin's idea of evolution. So, so all of that, that comes, I love and I... Yeah, all, all, all of it comes back. So what do we do with all that? Uh, for me, <laughs> when, I, when I have a difficult conversation with someone or business or interpersonal or intimate relationships, uh, I'm trying to solve a problem. It helps me to think differently about myself. How, not how does the little Greg with all the programs and fears solve this from my dysfunctional upbringing, but how does God eternal within the body look at this. Mm. And it opens the door at least to a different feeling and new possibilities. I'm not going to say it solves every problem, but I feel differently when I ask myself that question. And in that difference, it opens me to loving my way through the problem rather than fighting my way through the problem. And maybe that's what we're learning. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, when, as you were saying the whole thing, I kept being like, it keeps going back to the divinity within yourself. If you, if you think of it as a simulation and you remember that you are part of a much bigger product, like you just said, the day-to-day stuff, you will start looking at it more like, oh, what, what, like, what am I getting? What am I learning from this? How can I evolve? How, what, what is it? transmuting versus just uh, 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 like everything's Mm. so awful. And then that same idea of being able to communicate beyond and remembering that your imagination, your thought process has so much 
power and is connected to more than just this amorphous idea of just fake ideas you're creating, that it actually yeah. has the power. But you know, I agree with everything you're saying, and I'm loving our, our conversation, Tal, and I really appreciate I know, and you your, have to go. your willingness to, to go. <laughs> A lot of people don't want to talk about these things, but I think one of the things that's that's really important is people say, well, how do I, how do I convince my family? You know, how do I convince my friends? And my experience is we cannot convince or persuade anyone. What we can do is live in our lives by example, what these understandings mean. And what yeah. will happen is other people will come and what they'll, humans check each other out. That's what we do. And so they're going to say who's happier, who's healthier, who's more fulfilled, who is more abundant. Uh, why aren't you afraid of that that germ that's out there in the world? Or why aren't you afraid of that politician or whatever? And, and those are the kinds of questions that open the door to a deeper conversation. Because if you simply say to someone, hey, do you know your DNA says God eternal within the body? You will sound like a crazy person <laughs> be because there's no context for the, the conversation before or after. And that's why it's not useful yep. to, to do that. But when we live what we have discovered about ourselves by example. And I've never been blessed with children and I really appreciate you bringing uh, a new life into the world. And I want to tell you, I just released a video on this. Growing population is not our problem. Earth's population is declining rapidly. Infertility mm -hmm. is on the rise and it's more and more difficult to bring babies into this world. And it, and it is, and the, the curve, the replacement curve, for our planet has been 2.1 babies per woman on the planet. We're now far below that. We're losing life faster than we're making life. We will peak. We'll, our population will not keep going. We're going to peak about 2050. Unless something changes, we don't have the replacement rate. You're going to see a very, very different. And that's not that far away. You're going to wow. see a very, very different planet. So uh, I have friends who are now conceiving for the first time, and it has taken them more times and more miscarriages because of the quality of the sperm and the egg for a number of reasons. Environmental toxins yep. are called uh, anti-androgens that are in the environment. Stress is a big part of this, uh, but it's a mystery. And many people are still stuck in the population bomb theory that was a book that was released in the early 70s saying that we've got to cut back because there's not enough for everybody. That's an old way of thinking. It's not supported by the data. And what the data does show, Tal, is that we, we can raise the standard of living for every child, every woman, every man on the face of the earth with the technologies that we have without endangering our environment. And we can do that. We can dream a beautiful dream together because that's what we're doing in this, in this simulation. simulation. We're dreaming the dream. <laughs> we, can, we can dream a, a, a higher dream together without hurting our environment if the greed and the corruption is not part of that dream. And this is what our generation is facing now. And if you fight the greed and corruption on the level that CNN and Fox News and MSNBC want you to, that keeps us stuck in the, the very thinking that creates the problem. And we begin to, to allow ourselves the grace of what it means to be human in this world and to operate from that place you see things change. I've seen it in the corporate boardroom. I've seen it in communities. Things change very quickly. And, and I think this is the opportunity that we have right now. And that's, that's just one man's opinion. That's what I'm seeing happening. And maybe that's what we're learning in our simulation. I 
because I can honestly talk to you for 10 more hours and I would so appreciate it if you'd come back because I'm enjoying this <clears throat> so, so much. But I also want to respect your time. I've taken so much advantage of you already. I, I, I have six minutes for my next interview. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I, I Exactly. So go give them the six minutes. I'm so sorry. Um, no. But you're amazing. You're amazing. And I know this community appreciates it. I appreciate you. And it's just so stimulating to have these conversations. And for that, I'm appreciative. And um, you're just doing so much good out there. So thank you. It's good for me. I've had a tough couple of days. I'll be very honest. It's a tough couple of days. It's good for me to hear that. Uh, just from this conversation, mm. I love you. I love what you're doing. I love the man behind the scenes helping, helping this. I won't out <laughs> his name. I don't know if he wants his name out there or not. And I love I our just community. Did. I just did. I, I just want, I just want to you're... say everyone, everyone listening, thank you for everything. It's, it's a tough world. We've never seen anything like this and we're learning together and there's so much there for all of us. And if we can just remember what it means to be human and celebrate that in our lives, I think that's all we're being asked to do. You can know the other stuff. It's overwhelming. Just be the best version of yourself. And there he is. Hey, Jonathan. <laughs> I see <laughs> and your on name. That, that is a perfect way out. Let's remember what it means. And yeah. Jonathan's coming on. And you are, thank you. And I know you have to run. And thank you. All right. Thank you all so much. I look forward to our next. Greg, you're amazing. Yes, Thank you too. as well. You're thank awesome. you. Bye-bye. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.